If you haven't signed up for our Discord channel, please do so at MajorDumbaMedia.com. That's MajorDumbaMedia.com. There's a link that will take you to Discord. If you don't know what Discord is, it's basically for gamers and Gen Z people. But us old folk are using it too because it's a great place to connect with a community of uh, sometimes like-minded individuals, sometimes people that are highly opinionated. But as we like to say, they all add up to a community that helps you live your life a little bit more deliciously. We have wonderful discount codes if you're not interested in participating. And that is all the reason to join too. 10% off any day, 20% off athletic brewing and $40 off Cometeer Coffee. That is a sick deal for your first two orders. It used to be one order. Now it's two. 15% off East Fork Pottery. And of course, 10% off all Momofuku goods. We have two new noodle flavors that are air-dried, not deep-fried. And listen, there's some people that are coming up with some noodles, and they are definitely deep-fried and made places that I won't talk about. Anyway, it's sweet and spicy, and it's spicy chili. Great new flavors. We have a bunch of new products coming out in the Momofuku pipeline, and you can visit us at shop.momofuku.com to use that 10% off discount code, or visit us at Whole Foods, Target, and now Sprouts, and probably a great supermarket grocery store near you. So check out all of our pantry items, our chili crunch, our black truffle chili crunch, which uh, I'm out of and need to re-up on, our salts and spices, and I just made a beer can chicken with athletic brewing, athletic light. My first beer can chicken ever with our spicy salt. And let me tell you what, did I cook that dead raw in the center? Dead raw. Because guess what? That beer can, they don't tell you, but boy, does that absorb a lot of the heat. And boy, does that make everything around that beer can dead raw when everything else is properly cooked. So, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. But. Once I cut that open, I popped that sucker back in the oven and did it come out delicious. And uh, I thought about just uh, recording that whole and uh, putting it out there in the, in the world, but uh, probably should need to do it all over again. Anyway, we'll talk about that another day. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Dome Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. No Chris Ying today, just me and Yuna producing... We're going to get into an NFL episode. And before you roll your eyes for those individuals that are like, oh, I hate sports. I can barely listen to Dave talk about culture and food. Well, now he's got to talk about sports. Don't worry. Seriously, I, I think that it's important to know about other things in culture, particularly in football, because it does give me some insights and hopefully you some insights about where culture may be headed towards. So we're going to do a three things about the NFL. We're going to talk about the, sort of the season itself. It's a little bit of a moif of sorts. And um, comparing it to the cooking world to some degree. All right, let's get on to the show. We got a three things I think about the upcoming NFL season. And again... This may seem like a bunch of nothing to you if you don't li like sports or listen to football talk, but um, I find there's a lot of similarities or things that I, you know, clearly besides fantasy football and rooting for sports in general, I grew up playing football. I love football. Is it got problems? Yes. But what part of culture doesn't? But I look at things like football, I genuinely do to gain insight to how my life works and my work works. And that may seem like a stretch, but hopefully it won't be. So in football, there has been a change in the quarterback position. And arguably, the quarterback position is the hardest position in sports. That does seem like hyperbole. Maybe hitting a baseball is the hardest thing in sports, but to actually excel at being a great quarterback, you sort of have to have a supercomputer as a brain, extremely fast reflexes, hand-eye coordination, and like, photographic memory to some degree. It doesn't make any sense how hard that position is because it's extremely complex. And if you ever hear the, the jargon that is thrown at quarterbacks that they have to remember, it's, uh, it's high stress, high wire athleticism. And I, I sort of marvel at those that can do it. And quite frankly, there's only like not even 32 teams. There's probably, you know, would you say like 12, 12 quarterbacks that can actually do it? It's, it's a very difficult position. 
It's the same sort of uh, exclusivity, say, as an F1 racer. So it's the reason why quarterbacks are getting paid $50, $60 million a year. Anyway, growing up, you know, I, I, I would hear stories about Johnny Unitas and, and uh, Dan Fouts, and these were sort of quarterbacks from the 60s and 70s, and they were iconic. And then it turned into, you know, Joe Theismann, who was with them, the then Washington football team, and you had Joe Montana, Dan Marino. And what, grew, what I grew up with was this, this idea that a quarterback had to basically be a white dude that was super tall, that, you know, had a traditional orthodox approach to football, right? They, they very much always remind me of that player that is described as Billy Bean in Moneyball. They looked the part. They looked like they had the girlfriend. They looked like they were the captain of the football team. They're the prom, you know, king, et cetera, et cetera. They always looked the part. They never deviated from that role. And while you had some people like Warren Sharp and Randall Cunningham and then Michael Vick, who were black athletic quarterbacks, they were always labeled as athletes that ran the ball. And they were always typecast as limited because they were too athletic. Do you understand how stupid that sounds? They were limited because they were too athletic and they couldn't play football in the traditional way. Ultimately, the quarterback position was controlled by the very few people that sort of defined the quarterback position, both on the media end and the coach's end, because they didn't want to lose control of, of the narrative. They didn't want to lose control of how the game was played. And that would happen at the highest level, which is the NFL. Yeah, there's other leagues, but the only league that counts in football is really the NFL. And when I talk about this relation to culture, I think what's interesting is as a whole, most things in culture I find go from the top down, right? It's that devil wears Prada, almost platitude these days, the cerulean blue effect. So what happens at the very top trickles all the way down and infiltrate, infiltrates its way into other parts of culture. And you would think that high school football would not influence the NFL. But over the years, that there was such a rigid approach to the NFL that ex people were experimenting, making mistakes, challenging the status quo from the lower leagues, from high school, and then the college. And then college, from the 90s on up, really the, the 2000s on up, became the sort of experimental playground for the NFL. That's where ideas would be tested by coaches in college. And they started to challenge the notion of what an athlete was in the NFL. They, used to, they started to challenge what it meant to be quarterback, to be sort of all of these positions. They started to challenge what it meant to be great at it, to, to put an athlete in their position. So strangely, as times changed, high school and college started to influence the NFL. And sure enough, over the past 10 years, the NFL has slowly adopted and embrace the role of a running quarterback, the role of a dual threat quarterback, the role, of a mo the role of a mobile quarterback. I'm fascinated by this simply because I remember growing up and remembering when Doug Williams was the first black quarterback that won the Super Bowl, and I was just sort of dumbstruck that there was this label attached to Doug Williams that he was black. That was actually what was potentially going to prevent him from being great at being quarterback. It was ridiculous. So there was just the, all of this sort of, quite frankly, terribleness to understanding football. And when Michael Vick came on board and everyone was like, oh, this guy, wait a second, he can throw the ball and he's really fast, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened was in football, you had these quarterbacks sort of failing to be athletic quarterbacks because the systems wouldn't change. The coaching and the teams wouldn't change their philosophies around this player. So a lot of these players washed out or they never played quarterback. They would play wide receiver, right? They'd always play wide receiver or maybe even safety. You had Scott Frost in Nebraska. You had Antoine Randall L. You had a bunch of wide receivers in the pro level that were actually quarterbacks in the NFL. And, you know, if you're athletic, it just didn't happen. And 
in the lower levels of football, high school, and, and particularly college, coaches started to change their systems and philosophy to embrace athleticism, to make it less convoluted, archaic, Byzantine in terms of its information, and make it easier. It didn't have to be this 1,000-page playbook. You could simplify it. So you had this thing called the spread offense happen, which is simple. It's like you literally spread out your team as far as possible, and you don't sort of uh, burden the players with a ton of plays. It's just like, okay, you have like three options. You can go off this route. So it was really streamlined and simple. Fine. And then that turned into this thing called the RPO. And four or five years – no, it's like four years ago we had Kevin Clark on who recently left the ringer to join Omaha Productions. and. It's one of my favorite podcasts we've done because this was the beginning of the Baltimore Ravens embracing Lamar Jackson, who this season is changing the offense to it's a lot more spread offense approach. But this is the first time that an entire offense was built around a quarterback and they were going contrarian and it was extremely successful and it was able to sort of protect Lamar Jackson as he grew to be hopefully a a tier one best in class quarterback, which I think he is. but. It was a throwback offense, and people didn't know what to expect. But really, what the Baltimore Ravens did, led by John Harbaugh and, and uh, Ozzie Newsom and Eric DePosta, they, they really embraced modern analytics and, and uh, sort of a, a, uh, a different way of embracing football. And I really love the way the Ravens played. If I'm going too in-depth, I apologize. This, is, this stuff is important to me, not necessarily as a football fan, but I'm like, huh, here you have a team. Did they win the Super Bowl? No, uh, in this approach. But I admire the fact that they bucked tradition. And they implemented things like the RPO. And I remember interviewing Kevin Clark, who was the NFL lead analyst for The Ringer. And there was a lot of pushback from the NFL because they were like, oh, that's a high school offense. That's never going to work. Sure enough, the RPO is being implemented by just about everybody in the NFL and used effectively by the most recent Super Bowl champions, uh, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs. This is a pattern that I feel like we have seen throughout culture. Ideas that are challenging the orthodoxy, that are, quite frankly, scaring the shit out of the people that are the gatekeepers, And you can't always identify which are the ideas that are going to revolutionize things. But sure enough, you can almost like guarantee that at some point, the establishment, the status quo is going to get overturned somehow. And I'm looking at the NFL right now. And what I'm thinking about as the mobile quarterback, is this the year that people embrace the mobile quarterback as the future, as the status quo? And the old ways of looking as a quarterback, as a, as a standard pocket, when I say pocket passer, they just three to five steps after the ball is hiked, you know, they, they just throw the ball. They, they're relatively stationary and they throw the ball and it's pretty, pretty traditional. I think that this pattern, as convoluted as it is, as I've explained it all, I see time and time again. And if this can happen in something that, almost refuses to change, which is the NFL. If you think about it, it's almost allergic to change. I can also think about an industry that is allergic to change, and that's the restaurant industry. So I look at the mobile quarterback this season, and it gives me hope, and it gives me insight as to what is possible in the restaurant industry and other parts of culture. And if you haven't been paying attention, man, like there's a lot of change happening in the restaurant industry. Uh, Yes, restaurants are opening up at a rapid pace, and Things to seem to be like sort of a gilded era, but at the same time, it's not, and it's changing, and there's a changing of the guards, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think that right now you're in a position of dining where things are a lot more streamlined. Things are not as complicated as they once were um, cuisine-wise. But at the end of the day, all that matters is you win the game, you know? All that matters are, is a diner leaving happy. And I've learned a lot the past three or four years, but right now I, when I talk to diners, people are happier than ever before. And I think that, that is in part 
due to the commoditization of information, right? Uh, you used to have to work at a restaurant to learn a technique, right? You th- literally to learn how to cook sous vide, you would have to work at, I say, Jean Georges, Danielle, and WD50. That was it to learn how to not cook sous vide, to use sous vide. And now any home cook that's a nerd can buy a, a cryovac machine and cook in vacuum. And that happened over 15 years. And that's what I mean by the commodification of it. Now you can go on YouTube and you can probably buy a dozen of cookbooks that are talking about cooking in vacuum. Thomas Keller wrote a book called Under Pressure. That's how cutting edge it was. And now it's very, very commoditized. He would never write a book like that today. So that evolution in sports, I see as the evolution in food as well. And anything that you think was unmovable and sort of um, would always be the case, like a certain way of dining, I, I think the only thing I can understand to be true is you can almost bet that it's not going to be in vogue, right? You can almost bet right now that the current trend of eating comfort, eating nostalgia, eating at a restaurant where it's not necessarily chef-driven, that might last another year or two, maybe five years. But sure, shit, it's going to reverse into, revert into something else. What? I don't know. The only thing I can bank on is constant, is change. And, and that's what I see in football. So uh, I'm curious to see if this is the year that the mobile quarterback becomes the status quo. And you have Anthony Richardson for the Colts. You have Jalen Hurts, clearly, who's like maybe one of the best quarterbacks. I won't list all the quarterbacks, but, uh, you know, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think you want to look out for um, also the way the money's moving. So, like, the way that, you know, people are drafting younger and younger quarterbacks, expecting them to fill in the shoes of, you know, the leader of the team and it's like hey we have this great infrastructure around you uh we need you to come in you know justin fields jalen hurts and then just start performing and i think in the past you hear all these like kind of dog whistle arguments for why um you know a mobile quarterback is not best for your team you hear like hey like there's an injury risk like mike please slide like i just remember even like obama was telling michael vick that he needs to slide you know it's like kind of like Hey, don't get injured because you cost a lot of money. So that's that's definitely something to consider in the mobile quarterback discussion. But uh, as as they get younger and it's more like younger quarterbacks coming into play, like you know, there's systems that are already in place for them, and they're trying to put that quarterback in a position to succeed. You know, and you know, do you see any parallels to that in the in the cooking world where it's like the system needs to kind of like be set up and listen when I when I think about modern day cooking. I remember when I worked for Jean George, it was the first time I saw a 40 hour work week. It was the first time where I saw recipes measured out to the milligram. Right? It was the first restaurant that I saw that actually used the metric system. And it was the first one where it was so methodically organized that you were almost, you know, it almost, and I don't mean this, this is a, a positive way. It was like it turned it into like, it wasn't romanticized. It was just sheer work. You know what I mean? Like, and it wasn't like a, an assembly line, far from it. But there was so much thought that was like, just do your job. It was almost like a Belichick offense. It was like, I don't give a shit about you giving you know, help here, here, and here. Just do your job here, here, and here. And that's all we're asking of you. Really, really like regimented and then you have other places that are similar to you know say if more free-flowing often i would say over the years though and i think this is in correlation you can see this with the uh, nfl and nfl players union you use and and with sort of contract there are parallels between sports and sort of how you work in a restaurant you used to be able to draft a quarterback and have them sit down for you know, three, five years. Steve Young, one of the greatest quarterbacks, sat behind Joe Montana for like seven years. He didn't start till he was like 20, 29. There's no way you could do that today. Part of the collective bargaining agreement, 
and just sort of the players union, there's guaranteed contracts. So if you first round pick, you have a fourth year, four year guaranteed payments and then a fifth year player option. And with a salary cap structure that falls in line with sort of the current economics of the game. So it's like before, you know, you could sign a player, sit them on the bench and like not worry about it. And maybe, and there also wasn't like a salary cap. So there was a bunch of reasons why really a bunch. And this isn't the, the podcast to go into all of those reasons why that teams were forced to streamline their, their playbooks because they didn't have the time to teach them this complicated offense and defense. They didn't have the time anymore to just sort of sit them down and let them wait and to develop and mature. They had to play them faster. And honestly, we talked about this with Kevin Clark back, like, you know, four years ago. It started in college too, right? In college, you didn't start to play until maybe you were junior or senior. Now, if you're a freshman, 18 years old, you were in charge of an offense, mainly because the, the college kids were like, if you're not going to start me, I'm going to transfer. And if I don't have a talented player to start and play for me, that coach is going to lose their job. So the, the coaches you know, were almost forced to start to play, play players early. And by doing so and not being able to teach them things, they had to make the offense simpler. So that, that you got the spread offense and the RPO. So you now have an entire system of players when they're good enough and, and, and they graduate to the NFL and they get drafted. They've now lost potentially four to five years. When I say five years, they can maybe have a redshirt year. Five years of being groomed and learning how to cook. I'm not cook. How to like understand the game, right? And then they get to the pros and then they struggle. And you saw that for another, like honestly, the past 15 years, players would struggle. They still talk about today. Well, this quarterback, Will Levis of Kentucky, who's now on the Titans, he played in a pro offense, so he understands how to play the game, and Bryce Young, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't. It's, it's more of a college offense. Anyway, I'm just saying that you can see the parallels in cooking because all of a sudden, say in the mid-'90s, you had David Boulay's restaurants, Les Panas. We're just talking about New York City. Uh, you had Danielle. You had a you know, five to 10 restaurants that could honestly stockpile talent like you've never seen, right? They didn't have to put any ads out to hire cooks. Cooks were literally lining up hoping to get a job. So you could have a kitchen where by the time you sort of did all the the rounds in a kitchen, you might have spent maybe five to six years, right? Like now you're lucky if you get a cook to spend one year in a kitchen, because they have choice and they have more options. And that harder knowledge about how to cook, they can learn anywhere now, right? Because the entire system, and I mean this, I wouldn't say every restaurant. Hey, I would say every restaurant today cooks in a way that they didn't 10, 15 years ago. I'd argue that if you look at the French Laundry, some systems certainly haven't changed um, because they just can't. But I'd Bet you, and I don't know if anyone would, 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 would cop to this, things are definitely technically streamlined and easier than they were 20 years ago, right? And that's a positive thing. So to answer your question, you know, yeah, I think the systems have changed, but they have changed just like the systems in the NFL have changed, where it's this cascading effect where you have to make things simpler from the high school level to the college level. Then there's this really abrupt change in the NFL. So you have a lot of high washout failure rates until the NFL changes their system too. And here's the thing. I don't think anybody in that watches the NFL gives a shit that it's simpler. They just want to see points scored and they see it to be entertaining. So a lot of it is a change of perspective. And I can nerd out about how techniques and kitchens, kitchens have changed in terms of how they produce food from an old school way to a new school way, here's the deal. Diners are happier than ever before. So the only person that really needs to update their view is me because no one else gives a shit.
This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Second thing I think about. This sort of ties into the first one. There, there's a bit, there was a bunch of media this year, this summer, about the running back position. I think about the running back position a lot because I grew up uh, watching Bill Parcells coach and Tom Landry and, of course, Washington and Joe Gibbs in the NFC East. And these, again, these things may mean nothing to you. When I say running back, it's a position literally where it used to be Besides the quarterback, probably the most important position, maybe the most important position, right? Because that's how you won football games. It was, it was about ground attack and controlling the ball. And um, it was the way it was, right? Passing the ball was, was, was foolish. It was so entrenched. And again, this is very similar to an athletic quarterback or even a black quarterback, right? Like. People would put a ceiling on it, or people would challenge the notion that you can't throw the ball, right? Even the West Coast offense by Bill Walsh was almost seen gimmicky, right? Uh, but clearly it wasn't. Won a bunch of, it was seen as finesse, finesse football, which is ridiculous. And then you had some challenges to that, to the run and shoot, and, and sort of the early genesis of what we have as a spread offense. But for the most part, for, you know, 19, you know, Vince Lombardi on till 2010, it was about running the football. It never changed. We also talked to Kevin O'Connor, KOC, about this over the years, the lead NBA analyst for the year. And we were talking about the evolution of basketball, really led by Steph Curry and the Warriors, which was shoot a bunch of three points. Three-pointers, because three-points are more than two-points. And there's certain spots on the basketball court, and it fundamentally changed the game. And it used to be about having a big man, right? You have to have a center. You can't win the NBA without a center. You have to dominate the paint. Now, if you do that, everyone's going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? So I can talk about that. I can study that, and I want to understand that. And I find that to be very similar to the running back position. On one hand, it's very sad that running backs aren't getting paid anymore on the other hand you see this happen throughout culture all the time right you know positions that were important are no longer important that's just the way it is and i probably bet a lot of money that in 10 15 years the running back will be really important again because it's probably going to be some quarterback that's also the running back or something like that or the running back is going to be some positionless thing. Or there's also a probability that it's just going to go away. You've, you've had positions to go away, right? The, the H-back, the full-back, and things like that. So I, I cannot stress this enough. If you're like, I don't care about football. Well, you don't have to, but you should care about patterns that repeat themselves. And all you should hear when you think about a running back and you don't care about football is here's a situation where an entire sorry group universe, right, the world of football, held on to the singular belief that you have to run the football to win a football game. How many beliefs in culture are very similar to that? Where it's like, I don't know. And I, there's so many that it sounds stupid that I can't even think of one. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you know, the way we consume media. 
you know, people who were like videotapes are the way forever. DVDs are going to be the thing forever. There you go. You know. Landlines are the only way people are going to use telephones. <laughs> uh, French food is the only delicious food in the world. You know, things that exactly like, are just so stupid that they're only stupid now. But if you go back in the day in the, you know, context of that time period, it makes total sense. Only when you look in hindsight, you're like, wow. That was short-sighted. That was stupid. So part of that is to understand that. And, and that's what I mean by learning at the running backs. I don't know what exactly is going to happen. But it's, so all I'm saying is with the change in the running back position, it's a constant reminder to me that everything is subject to change. Even when people don't expect it, it's going to change because that's just the way it goes. So... Just if you if you think you are in a position where it's immutable, you should think again. And I think it's a very humbling realization. So that's why I like to think about it. Number three, another thing I'm looking at this season are our, our, our peak performance of players. And if you go back to, uh, I think, the second Lucky Peach issue and even – what is now called Mind a Chef, but it was really Lucky Peach, the TV show on PBS. We had a sweet spot issue. I've been obsessed, almost pathologically so, when I was younger, about being at your best. Uh, certainly my position has changed. When I say best, I think you can say unequivocally so. I don't say unequivocally. Your skills degrade at some point in time. Right? Like, it's just the truth. Like. If your skills as a person mentally and physically degrade, then just logically speaking, then there is a period where you're at your apex of your powers and your skill set. And I, I always wanted to maximize that. Why? I have no idea. I think it was probably ingrained in me from playing golf and always looking at the leaderboard. And also studying all the chefs. And again, I've talked about this spreadsheet before. I think it was the only spreadsheet I've ever made in my life about all the chefs that I ever admired. And when did they make sort of, when was their moment? When did they have their best dishes and their movement in sort of food world? And I would say most chefs did it from age 27 to 35. There are certainly exceptions to the rule. And it really depends on what kind of chefs. If you are a chef that wanted to do Vanguard cutting edge stuff and you're going after the stars, then yeah, it was 2735. If you were looking to be a chef that was a shokunin level where you're trying to get mastery of your craft, it really only starts at like 35. You know, your peak is a much longer peak. It's, it's not as pronounced and it's much more gradual and you have longer relevance because you're not chasing ephemeral things. You're just worried about yourself. So that's something I didn't see when I was younger, when I was coming up with this list was an appreciation of the Shokunin effect where you're getting mastery of your craft. And quite frankly, you don't give a shit about a list like this, right? But for me, I certainly cared about it, right? And whether it was, when did Alain Chappelle make his, you know, uh, Sepp Cappuccino or when did Michelle Bra make the Gargiyu? Or when did all of these chefs make their certain dishes? I had a list, and yeah, there were exceptions to the rule. But again, if you were trying to do ambitious kind of cooking that was really more self-serving, quite frankly, it was 27 to 35. And I wanted to, to maximize that. There are different ways... I, and again, now that I'm 46, I can look it back at that period and see how short-sighted it was. I can also see the power in it. I can also see that I didn't, I was just too young to realize that this was just one small scope of cooking, right? And how biased or really just, it wasn't stupid because I don't think it was stupid, but I just couldn't see that there was more land out there. But that still doesn't take away from my fact that I think for the most part, whether 
what kind of whatever cook you are, if you're committed to it, and not even cook any creative field, you are going to be at your peak at one point. And when I think about athletics, whether it's golf, you know, Tiger Woods had his run until he was 35, right? Um, it almost ha- always happens. In chess, it's like something like 17 to 22. You know, it, 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 everyone has their peaks in their specific fields at various points in their sort of lives. Like if you just collect all the data. It also doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions to the rule. Let me like be very clear about that. There's always exceptions to the rule. But even so, if you look at the NFL today, the oldest players after Tom Brady retired, there's like six of them in their 40s. Like you're, you are in a deviation like crazy if you're like over 35 and playing football. I think that when it comes to cooking, cooking is athletic and cooking is also a creative mental exercise as well as everything else, which again makes it one of the most amazing jobs when, when it's going well. If you are in a profession where you're trying to gain wisdom, like a lawyer or a judge or a historian or something like that, or even I'll say a writer, you know, gaining information and culture, cultural information, I think it's a it's a blessing. But that's not what I'm talking about. I, I, when I talk about being a peak, I think it's a mixture of athletics. For peaks, for me, is something that has athletics, athletical, like a, you have to sort of be in movement to some degree, and you have to be using your mind to some degree. And I always think about chess because I remember having a class in college, and my professor was thinking like every chess, every great chess player is also an amazing athlete physically because you have to be. And I was like, huh, I never thought about that. And he's like, you cannot be out of shape and be a great chess player. It just doesn't happen. It's like not an impossibility, but you'll see that every great chess player was just a sick athlete. And I was like, huh. And ever since then, and whatever reasons why, I've always been curious about who's great at specific age. So anyway, this is a long-running conversation. I'm interested to see who's having a great season and who's not having a great season particularly because of their age. I know that sounds terrible, but let's be honest. That's what people draft when they fantasy football teams. Like, oh, man, Derrick Henry's 29 years old. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying out loud what people are thinking all the time. Tell me I'm wrong about that, you know? You're going to hell, Dave. Am I wrong? You're not wrong, but you're going to hell, man. <laughs> Take it easy on Derrick Henry, dude. That guy's been balling. Yeah, but he's like, yeah, he's balling, and that's why. And it's like, oh, man, like another another year. I'm like, uh, could he do it? The past three years, everyone that's owned Derrick Henry is like, I don't think he can do it again. He's only 29. All right? And there are things you can do to prolong that window. All right? And whether it's diet, training, regimen of some degree, you can keep that window open a long time. The thing about Derek, though, is that he's so big. You know, he's not like a typical running back size. So who is credibly hitting this guy enough times to make him feel like, oh, man, I feel kind of old this year. I don't know. Like, you know, my legs are starting to slow down. Nobody is hitting this guy in a way that's like making him regret playing football. You know, like he's so big. He's just like an athletic, like, you know, dynamo. And he's, he's something unlike what we've seen in the league, you know, at least for a decade, right? Like, I think when I think of guys Derrick Henry size, I think of like, you know, just even his height doesn't make any sense. You know, he's so big that like, you just wonder like, well, they've, is been, this guy they've, just been, they've been big rotting backs, you know? And again, like, I really don't want to get too nerded out on this podcast. Um, trying very hard not to, um, but you have a you have a football player that's been one of the very best, probably the best in his position. And ever since he came in the league, he was not a first round draft pick. He was a second round draft because he was too big. I'm like, oh, he's too big to be running back. Anyway, he's defied all of those sort of opinions. What I wanted to get at, besides trying to look at the age range of who's great and who's trying to prolong that window. It's the people that are trying to be great. And I think 
every time, and this will lead to our, our next conversation when we return from break, I don't think there's a person that's committed to prolonging that window of greatness to being the best possible player that isn't a fucking psychopath. You have to be so fully committed that it's it's insanity. You're sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber, you're going to bed early, you're waking up early, you're the first person there, you're playing football basically 365 days a year. But that's not just in football. That's if you want to be a great lawyer, right? If you want to be a great banker, if you want to be a great chemist, whatever. It's like you almost have to be fully committed to the sacrifice of everything else. And I think growing up, for me, that's what was told that you have to do. That was like unconditional, is the sacrifice to be great. We will take a break, and then we'll get into a conversation. Is the juice worth the squeeze? This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, we're back. I was watching the Netflix documentary untold, which is a great, it's almost like the Netflix 30 for 30. And on I'll be honest, I didn't know who Marty fish was until I was listening to the Ryan Russillo podcast a month or so ago. And he lost in the finals of this golf tournament, celebrity pro-am with uh, Steph Curry. And, you know, I was sort of like hearing him play, you know, talk about how good he was at golf and he was a former tennis player. And I'm like, I had no idea. And I had some idea that Steph Curry was really good at golf, but I was like, this guy, motherfucker. If I, if I practice, I could beat the shit out of him. And then I saw a swing, and then I saw that he scored like a 65. I'm like, I cannot beat this person. And I never even heard who he was, mainly because when, while he was playing tennis, I was cooking, and I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what was going on in the world of sports. I was fully committed to my career and my profession, and I lived, breathed, and ate cooking. The only thing I read was cooking, books and reviews, et cetera, et cetera. That's all I did. That's all I had the time for. So I had no idea who Marty Fish was. I didn't even know who Andy Roddick was. Really, I had heard of his name, but I didn't know. I never saw him play. I never saw anything in tennis. Anyway, it's a great documentary. I encourage you guys to see it. I could relate to a lot of the things that Marty Fish said. I thought it was a very powerful documentary about being vulnerable, about what we consider to be strength versus weakness, about being the very best. And I thought it was a great foil to have Andy Roddick and a traditional documentary 20, 50 years ago would be the greatness of Andy Roddick to, you know, the changing of the times. And quite frankly, it's brilliant on a lot of levels because it's a story about friendship. It's a story about, you know, a pursuit of greatness when in the sacrifice to do so. And another level, like the C story, is really about no matter what you do, you don't control shit in the timing of things. Because as great as American tennis was at the time, you were uh, competing against Roger Federer, Rod- Rafa Nadal, and Djokovic, and three of the probably the best players of all time. Anyway, I know this is getting really nerdy into sports, but what was uh, really moving to me, and I texted you know about this. I was like, you should watch this. 
you should watch this doc because I I could honestly give a shit about Marty Fish as a golfer or even tennis player. I was blown away that he did not play at the peak of his tennis powers because he was a late bloomer. He was prodigiously talented, and he always played second fiddle to his best friend in Erotic, who was number one. But Marty Fish didn't turn it on and sacrifice everything to be great until his late 20s, like 28. And he had a good run. And when Marty was talking about when he turned it on and he tried to change his diet and his practice regimen and he was full on. And before that, he was a very affable, loving, free-flowing guy. I would imagine a guy that you'd want to get beers with. And then he turned into a motherfucker, basically. And I could relate to all of those things. And, And the demeanor that he had on the court there was a period, there was a, a story when he was talking about when he was just yelling at his friend that he was competing against in a tournament. And that's, that's how he turned on this competitive edge, right? Like, I, 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 I saw a lot of myself in that, and I see that a lot in cooking. And, and I think a lot of that's changing, thankfully. But it was like, that's what I mean. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Because here he is now trying to be the very best, burning it all down as fuel for what? Right. Ultimately, he 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 reaches top ten in the world, and he qualifies for the U.S. Open. And there's something that nobody really talks about, which was why I was so happy that this documentary had Andy Roddick and Marty Fish talking about it. You sacrifice everything for success, but you're not prepared for the burden of that success and the expectations of that success. And then everything you've now changed for, you don't realize that you couldn't plan for all the changing data points in your life. And your intake now is completely different culturally than it was before. So there's no way you can prepare for that level of success. It's an impossibility. And I, I had no idea that he was in like the quarterfinals of the US Open and he was going to play Roger Federer, probably going to lose, quite frankly. And this is like 2009. And he no-shows. No injury, but he had debilitating anxiety and depression. And I just thought that was like amazing to be able to do, number one, I had no idea. And, 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 and also just to be able to be honest about that. I thought that was extremely powerful. And I left watching that documentary thinking, is the pursuit of greatness worth it? Right? I don't want to say no, but at the same time, like, I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze, right? So for all of those athletes that we're talking about that are in their window of prime, uh, their prime athletic window, and it's important. Some of that by me might be financially motivated because that's their prime earning contract. But the reality is it's not just their fault. Our entire society seems to be based around, you know, that window so you can earn your keep to some degree. I don't blame anybody. And this isn't about understanding it. I'm just trying to talk about it because there's no right answer right now. I just think at the age of 46 now, when I see my kids, I don't know if I want to be like my dad and tell them, like, you need to sacrifice everything to be great. It's clearly in my DNA to tell them that. Do I want them to be great? But I think at the end of the day, when I think about my kids, and I think most parents would probably feel the same way. You never want your kids to be, you don't really care if they're the greatest of all time, because at some point they're not. They're going to lose. They're probably not going to be as good as you think they are. But even if they are, which is a rarity in itself, don't you want them just to be happy? And I think that's what I'm trying to figure out. And I honestly think that's one of the questions that I think Gen Z is asking out loud. And I definitely have a lot of pushback to it. I think that may be a little over-indexed the other way. Because, yeah, working yourself to the bone. Like, I remember when I was living in Japan, it's a salary, man. And, and in Korea, too, it's like you just work yourself and you drink yourself to death and that's it. It's the four stages of life. You are spoiled rotten because you are born, right? And then when you get to school as a toddler, then you work. You work your ass off. And then you get married. So there's a little break if you get married. And then you die. 
But for the most part, you work the entire, you just work. That's your life. And I think there's not a surprise that there's the highest rate of uh, depression for younger kids today, uh, not just because of social media. I think there's just a paralysis of choice and it's a real existential crisis of like, is it worth it? Why do I want to do it? Does that bring me any meaning or joy? So I don't know, right? And that's why I feel like the conversation is changing when you see a documentary like Marty Fish being like, yeah, I probably wouldn't change anything, but man, I don't know if I'd do it again, you know? And that's how I interpreted it. And when I look at all these athletes, I'm like, yeah, sometimes you might see like LeBron James or something like that, but I don't know, like, I don't have an answer, just talking out loud. While I'm totally invested in trying to figure out who's going to be the best, I simultaneously hate myself for doing that because I feel like all you want is your kids to be happy. And if that makes you happy, great. But I don't know if it does. And so many of the things that I used to give a shit about, I just don't care about anymore. But as you know can attest, I still... I'm still pushing <laughs> the same old ways, you know? Absolutely. You're, you're still, you still got that thing, you know, that like pushes you forward. And that's, that's something that I I've, like always admired about you and respected about you is that, you know, you have that drive and there's that part in that documentary where they say like, you know, in order to be the best, you got to be willing to stomp on somebody on your way to victory. You have to like sacrifice things. And I think, just to see like what you've been able to build in your character and your ability to kind of like, and I know this is sorry to, <laughs> to shower you with compliments on your show, but like, no, your character and your grit and things that, you know, aren't common in our society anymore. Like in the younger generations, it just, it's like, this is, well, I mean, this is a testament to why well, you do you it. You know, and the, all I'm at, we don't have, we don't have to share anything more than this. Well, we had, we've had a lot of conversations as of late. And you said something, because I've been trying to push you to a place as you're young, right? Korean, like older brother. And you were like, I'm not you. You know what I mean? Like, and like, I was like, no, 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 no. You just have to like grind it out. That's all. And you're like, I don't want to. <laughs> and I'm like, but that's the only answer. And I don't think that sounds generational because you are Gen Z motherfucker. So I don't, I don't think that's a generational thing. You know, I, I fundamentally don't believe it's me just sounding like a boomer. I just think what you were talking about and asking for, I was like, you just have to like fucking do it. <laughs> Definitely. And well, there is a lot of comfort in knowing that you think that I can, you know, there's like, there's like that creeping moment of doubt. of just like, can I do this? Like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can hack this, you know? And you're the one who's just like, we well, got to do it. And that's it. You just got to do it. And, you know, identify other areas because like in your brain, it's like, Oh, sh- I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm so tired. I can't, I can't keep pushing forward. And then you'll just kind of give me like the, you can do it. It's just a matter of efficiency. You have to kind of evaluate like where you're at, what you, you know, what are things that you can improve? And like, there's this like undercurrent of belief. It sounds kind of weird, but like, that was something I reflected on this weekend. I was like, you know, at the end of the day, he believes in me. Like he, he expects me to get there. Like he is, he's telling me how to get there and he expects me to get there. And that I think is the one thing that I pull away and I find so inspiring is like, oh shit, he, he really believes in me. Like he, he like actually believes I can do this and he's pissed that I don't recognize it. You know, that like, he's, he's mostly upset that I'm not seeing it in myself. And I think when I, when I identify that, that's when I'm, I feel that kind of like, all right, so you know what time it is. It's like, you're in that tunnel coming out for the, you know, for the tennis match or for the fight or whatever. And you're just like, this is it. Like you can't turn back now. You know, the cage is about to close and you got to get in there and you got to, you got to wrestle it out. Like you either coming out on your back or, you know, on your feet, but get in there. And that's like a huge inspirational moment. You know, like that's, I think that's the thing that bridges the gap is like somebody believes in you and 
are you going to, are you going to let them down? Like, are you going to screw them over? Like, that's, that's well, what it is for me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I hear that. And I'm also just having to ask, like, is it worth it too? Because I'm sure there are other ways. I just don't know how, you know? <laughs> I mean, if you're questioning if it's worth it, you know, like, then it's probably not, right? Like, it's, it's like, are you thinking, what are you considering here? And it's more about, you're thinking about a destination, but I'm thinking about a journey, right? Like, is it a process? And I think that's the part that I wanted to get at was like, Dave, that process of you iterating, pushing, trying to be the best in a field where like, they're kind of, it's hard to tell who the best is. You know, like if I asked you who the best chefs in the world right now were, and could you name one? You can't, right? Like you'd just be like, all right, I guess Corey Lee, but like, you know, but is it like clear cut? Everybody agrees. Not really. Right. It's not like the NBA champion or the number one tennis player in the world. You know, it is really like, it's kind of a little murky. So, but I guess things change, right? But driven to be number one, I now like, you know, like Corey will always be technically superior to anything I would ever do. And for anyone that's listening, I think it, not many people admit these things, right? And Corey's always been. Corey's more technically gifted and mentally gifted than just about everybody. That's just the truth. But I learned a lot, you know, a while back that doesn't mean like winning. You know, there's a lot of different ways to win. What has changed with me versus today versus me then is while acknowledging that Corey would fucking smoke me individually, maybe not so much team, but clearly uh, it's not even what I wanted anymore. I'd rather have my friendship with Corey, but at the same time, I don't care about being number one. And here's the funny thing. Corey doesn't give a fuck about it either. He just wants to do He's just in the pursuit of fucking being great. You know, that the, the, the greatness itself is what he's after. Like to be excellent at it, not to be great because of the fucking trappings and the, 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 how it's seen. You know, Corey doesn't give a fuck about anything like that. And I think that's what makes Corey so uniquely special. So when you say the best, yeah, I would, I would put, that's no different than being the best or like the, the best leader is the leader that doesn't want to be the leader, but has to be the leader. Right. And I, I think that's why I, I would put those kinds of chefs in that category. They're, they don't want to be the best, like the best chefs in Japan right now don't want to be on any list or a Michelin guide. So I, I, I don't know. I think what's changed for me though is I don't know if it's worth it. You know, I certainly was in that pursuit and now I don't, when I say I don't care, I don't have the words to describe that properly. It meant so much to me, and it meant a lot to a lot of other people. And when I see, like, say, someone like, uh, you know, the great Peter Serpico, who's changed his career, and he's now, he should, if, by the way, if you're looking for a chef consultant, you should hire Peter Serpico, one of the very best we have. I think there's a whole generation of chefs and I'm sure other people in their creative fields that are like, I don't know if I want to do it this way anymore. Right? Maybe that was spurred on by the pandemic. I don't know. But um, that's what I mean. The things I cared about before, I really don't put as a priority in my life anymore. I don't. So that's why I ask is like, is the juice worth the squeeze? To be great, even though it's decoded in my DNA to push and push and push, I am now simultaneously a basket case because I'm like, no, 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 no. I think this is a fucking faulty programming. But at the same time, it's like fucking have to be number one. So it's a real basket case schizophrenic scenario of being like defiantly lazy and, you know, to almost like civilly disobey my genetic programming to try to be number one. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't get the result that I'd like. Does that make any sense? Makes, it makes no sense. But uh, 
I mean, you've acquired a lot of grit, Dave. That's one thing that, and that's, that's something that nobody can take away from you is your ability to persevere through some extremely triumph circumstances. I think on a previous episode, you were talking about all the maladies and, you know, all the sickness you went through this year. And here you are recording a podcast with like the worst allergies. And you're just like, you just have that grit. You know, that's, that's different. You know, that's definitely not something that, you know, at some point people are going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, back, my back hurts. I can't come to work today. You know, like, you don't, you don't have that. <laughs> like, you showed up to work when you had your back problem. I was like, why are you here? That's again, my own neuroses. <laughs> anyway, we'll come back with a, a closing of the pod. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. We should probably do a re-intro, uh, another intro to this because this is a very strange podcast. Hardcore football that was trying midway to not be hardcore football talk. So probably alienated the non-football players and then alienated the people that cared about football. So we've alienated, I'd say, 99% of our listeners by now. And if you've made it this far, congratulations. Now that uh, we're here, let's just go back to just uh, really low-hanging fruit here and talk about NFL hot takes. Because the season's about to start. And I don't even know if I can talk about it yet. Can I talk about it? I can't talk about it yet. Something I can talk about. You know, saying, don't talk about it. And that's all we'll talk about. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. This comes out tomorrow. Like, this comes out Thursday. Oh, well, that's fine. Don't, don't do it. Okay, here we go. Who's winning the Super Bowl, Dave? We're going we're gonna to start off with the question everybody gets asked. Miami Dolphins. <laughs> Miami Dolphins are going to win it. Still? And Mike, I'm, t- I'm still saying Mike White is going to win the go to Disneyland as the Super Bowl <laughs> 53 MVP. And it's not because Tua has a concussion. Tua's, you know, I've looked in the future and, and Tua's going to have some kind of injury that's not a concussion. God willing, it's not a concussion. But I think the Miami Dolphins oh are going to win the Super Bowl this Talk year. about quarterbacks getting injured. Jesus Christ. All right, who's winning MVP? Um, Patrick Mahomes. Again? God. Again. All right, and then... Which team is getting the number one overall draft pick? Who's going to be the worst team in the league? I hope the Washington Commanders. Thank you. Because listen, it, I think it's a battle between the Rams and 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 the, the Washington Football Team. That but is before before Caleb Williams was a son of Los Angeles. He was a son of Washington D.C. You're just trampling over Sam Howell right now, who is one eighth Korean. I thought he was a quarter Korean. I can't even root for him that hard then. He's only eighth. Come on. I mean, I'm rooting for him, but like, I'm rooting for you like an eighth rooting for you somehow. An eighth of me is rooting for you somehow. I got to stop laughing on the mic. Hold on. Oh my God. And then, real quick, uh, the team you want to see succeed. Oh man. I I I don't know. I don't know. The worst team in the football I that I traditionally every year I root for the worst football team. And that year this year will be the LA Rams. So I'm rooting for the LA Rams. Oh. I also am rooting for them so they win enough games so they do not have the first pick in the draft. And I'm rooting for the Washington football team to be an abject disaster. And then Ron Rivera goes to another career. And we hire Eric Bieniemy to be our head coach. Ooh, spice. that's a hot take. It's a hot take. All right. Ron Rivera is one then, of the worst um, coaches in the NFL. He, he is one of the worst coaches in the NFL. There's no question he's not going to be part of the organization next year. Oh, Ron Rivera or Bieniemy? Ron Rivera? Ron Rivera. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. The enemy's been getting some heat. Um, okay. Well, that kind of rounds it out. I think uh, I was going to 
beg you to come back and you know support the commanders, but it sounds like you are supporting them in your very Chengian way. All right. Um, one thing I like, and we'll get out of here. I've been eating a lot of Dongjimi Guksu, and I think that while we still have hot weather, you should do it. Um, I've said this before that if you know certain kinds of Korean food would ever be beloved, then like it's a game changer, right? So the fact that people are eating uh, Korean hue or like Korean kejang, that to me is like the I, I still have a hard time comprehending that. So if foods that I thought were prohibitive to ever being loved, then I have to sort of uh, re, re, do a retake and rephrase my position about Korean cold noodles. I've long said that Korean naengmyeon and things like dongjimikuksu, which are not really naengmyeon at all, but I think has the acidic sort of flavor that reminiscent to moon naengmyeon. And if you're listening to this and you're like, what are you talking about? Can I get a spelling? Then, yeah, like I'm going to put you in a group of people that more than likely won't like it if you don't know what I'm talking about. In Korean, munengmyeon is pickled beef broth with dongchimi, which is a, a Korean watery uh, pickle. Um, delicious. And dongchimi is basically just the, the pickle liquid with a slice of tomato and cucumber and uh, somen noodles, basically not buckwheat with arrowroot or something like that. And, and it's chilled and it's just fabulous. And... That's the thing I'm, I want to eat every day. So you may not be close to a place that serves it, but you should look around. More than likely, I'd say that most restaurants that serve Korean food do not have dongjimi, guksu. I'd probably say that is real home cooking shit. And if you do have a restaurant that sells dongjimi, I, I would say this is a good indicator of a great, res- great Korean restaurant. More of a, not a great Korean restaurant, an indicator of a home cooking restaurant and if they're cooking home cooking stuff, style, then it's probably going to be great. Would you agree that Dongchimi Guksu is a good indicator of that? I say so, yes. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been to a restaurant that has Dongchimi Guksu that I didn't like. That, see? So Dongchimi Guksu, go seek it out. It's delicious. And even in cold weather, it's delicious. Anyway, let's give us five stars. Or not, let's just give us fucking first.